be helpful if you sit up, please, unless you have a medical condition or are pregnant. Make some, otherwise it's best to try and be as, to just sit for Dharma talks rather than lying down. And again, if you can experiment with the breath in the background as an aid to listening, see if staying in touch with the breathing while listening actually helps us listen a little bit better. Let's continue where we left off. If you recall, we were discussing how powerful the kilesas are or the tendencies in the mind towards greed, hatred, and delusion in pulling attentiveness away from the breath, which is our appointed object. And if you recall, it was suggested that even though we're basically doing a samadhi practice and have been since Friday night, wisdom is needed every step along the way and comes in sometimes knowingly and sometimes uninvited. As we begin to see that some of the bones that we're running after really, really aren't that delectable, we start to see the, what is the outcome of going after everything that the mind throws up. Does it really lead to peace or fulfillment? And more and more as we get a glimpse of that, uh, perhaps the attractiveness of the bones uh, becomes less. But nonetheless, you know from sitting all day that uh, that pull is powerful. As... uh, Our minds are not that different than the uh, drivers of the cars. You know, let's say, I'd rather be golfing, I'd rather be swimming, I'd rather be fishing. And what we hear all day is we're, we're directed to the breath, but we hear, I'd rather be fantasizing, I'd rather be worrying, I'd rather be planning. And the mind keeps finding good reasons to capture our attention and take us somewhere other than breathing. And then, if you recall, it was suggested that as our ability to stay with the breathing improves, as, we, as it becomes more continuous, as our attention becomes more continuous, uh, what comes out of that effort, the fruit that comes out of that effort, of course, is the most substantial way of, of developing samadhi. That is a, the very simple process of First, remembering to turn towards the breath because we could be anywhere else. But we have to remember. And that's part of why you have to hear the teaching so many times so that finally it becomes your own. And the mind remembers to, oh yeah. And it goes, it turns towards the breath. It aims its attention at the breath. And then there's the whole process of rubbing up against the breath, the in-breath and the out-breath, time and time again. 
out of that simple process of aiming our attention and then staying with what we've aimed our attention towards, the mind starts to develop some joy and some calm and some peace. And it's out of that that uh, much higher degrees of concentration come. Uncommonly uh, concentrated states of mind, uh, which is the direction the practice goes in quite naturally if we do it. It's been done by many, many people before us. And so that simple process has a rather profound outcome, and but each one of us has to see that for ourselves. And it's not that we have to have perfect samadhi before we can do vipassana, because we'll, uh, I hope tonight, begin some work on that, although we already have done some, but I mean more systematically and more explicitly. So as the mind improves its ability to understand, to reflect, either intentionally or intuitively, reflect on the disadvantage in life of having a scattered mind. That it's, it's not much fun having a mind that's all over the place. We have to learn that. Our education hasn't included that. That when the mind is not steady and concentrated, it's all over the place, it's actually not a happy way to be. And then we have to learn the other side of that. When the mind is steady and calm and stable, that this is of immense value, not only in our sitting practice, but in anything that we choose to do in life. Beginning to see that, put those two pieces of learning together, starts to move us in a direction of being with the breath more, with more interest, just quite naturally. The enthusiasm comes out of understanding and experience. And that's, of course, the most powerful. Um, however, the other thing that, that has to be done is granted that the kilesas, or these tendencies in the mind, the bones, the many bones in the mind, how powerful they are, we know that. And from ancient times onwards, there have been many aids that have been given to us, even with the breath. That is, ways to make the breath more accessible to attention, to awareness. If we think of the breath just as it is, uh, let's say a person very new to the practice or relatively new to the practice, it's really very simple plain, unadorned, and from a certain point of view, often experienced as boring, uninteresting, and not in a competitive position with all the many things that the mind throws up. It's a little bit like a glass of water. Now, most of us are not too interested in having a glass of water. We don't get excited about a glass of water. There may be a few health fads here who do. But for most of us, what we prefer is either Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, wine, beer, whiskey. 
we, it's water. I mean, but it's, it's got something added to it that makes it a little bit more exotic, more interesting, more novel. In addition, of course, the effect that it has. And so, the simplicity of water is, uh, just to use an analogy for the moment, by and large, and this may change as water becomes so precious, as we start to understand what water really is. But for right now, uh, it's nothing special, is it? We don't have to pay for it. Couldn't be too special, but now, of course, it's changing. You do have to pay for it sometimes. Now, even within, let's say, the health circles, which probably many of us here are familiar with, we're not offered straight water anymore. Have you read some of the labels on, for example, some of the water, uh, glacial water from Switzerland? And you read the label, and it's not a label, it's a story. It's like you have to have a PhD in geology to understand what they're talking about, the the structure of the mountains in Switzerland and the, the levels of rock and how old the mountain range is and how the French government or the Swiss government, you know, is protected it, and it's always got a seal at somehow 1800 something. <laughs> and it goes on and on. You get all teary-eyed when you read it. it. Just, you know, you start experiencing, I don't know, Swiss peasants with rosy red cheeks yodeling and drinking this water. And, and it's not only that, it's sent all the way over here. You get it in Cambridge, you know, and just it's packed in a nice blue label. It's water, you know. (laughs) So it does make it more interesting. But for some of us who've been in the health, I'm a health faddist. If some of us who are in that, even that starts to not be enough. The mind, so it goes to juices since we're not drinking alcoholic things. But now have you noticed that even juices, it's not, you can't get simple apple juice or pineapple juice. It's Apple, cran, banana, pumpkin, orange juice. And then every, every other month, there's a new exciting juice combination that's come out. I just want some apple juice. You know. Well, there's, there's a few, but we've run out because there are a few people who still like apple juice. And it's the same if you get the psychology of it. Okay, so we come back to the breath. Simple, breathing in and breathing out. Uh, this is what I think is one of the great difficulties of our practice, this particular way, the, w- the way of Vipassana. And it's also, to me, it's, it's uh, beauty, is its complete and utter simplicity. After all, we're not giving you any special mantra or any secret teaching. We're giving you what you already have. You already had your breath when you came here. <laughs> You have everything. All we're saying is, just take stock of what you brought here. You might have traveled all the way from California to get something here. I'm saying, whatever you, whatever you brought, that's it. There's, we don't have anything here. Have you noticed? There's absolutely nothing here. We're just saying, whatever you brought, take a look at that. And we're not, by and large, not adding or subtracting much. And also, the mind isn't so interested sometimes because it does want more. Now, the ancients, uh, in their wisdom, because this is to some degree always been true, have devised ways to uh, enhance the breath, to inv- enhance, uh, increase the interest, our interest and our ability to stay attentive to the breathing. 
And I just wanted to briefly mention a few. Some of them, uh, I think many of you already know. Uh, For example, counting the breath. By the way, I don't mean to demean these techniques because they're very useful and very helpful. Eventually, I think you just come back to just the breath. Uh, because everything else, at least for many people, when they practice for a while, uh, it starts to feel like a burden to uh, take on so much. It's just the breath by itself is enough. At any rate, counting the breath uh, can be something that gives the mind something to nibble at, because the mind hears these instructions, you know, and you've been hearing it for a few days now. Just come back to the breath. But it's desperate to do some thinking. There's no thinking in the breath. It's just whatever the breath is. It's just it's nonverbal. And the the addiction to to thinking is enormous. We've done a lot of thinking. And so out of some compassion for our poor mind, we say, okay, we'll give you something. You can count. How would that be? (laughs) Okay. And some minds are grateful. I say, thank you. Something, <laughs> something else for me to do instead of just breathe. Okay. So, let's say on the in-breath, one. On the out-breath, one. On the in-breath, two. On the out-breath, two. On the in-breath, three. On the out-breath, three. And so forth. That's one way to do it. If you're in, up to ten, you can make it, let's say, uh, five or six. If you see you're losing, your attention is uh, falling away at five, that you never get to ten, that's a little bit like rigging a sporting event. You know, you just, I never get beyond five anyway. So you make it five instead of ten. That way you, you feel as if you're okay, you're good at this. <laughs> and you get some confidence and more energy. And if, you, if in doing that, if you feel drawn to that, and you're welcome to try it or bring it up in interviews if you have some questions about it, um, it's all part of the samadhi practice. It's not anything different than what we've been doing but it can be helpful for some people at some time. It's sometimes. So if you miss a count, let's say you get to three or four, then and then you you the mind wanders somewhere and you never you don't remember five. So then you just go back and you start from one. You go to ten. You can also try this. I don't know if any of you are. I don't see the roads cluttered up with yogis at lunchtime walking. It's really helpful to breathe some fresh air out there and to move. Uh, particularly, and to practice being wakeful in just normal walking. So I would encourage you tomorrow, if it's you know, not too cold, or you know your own situation best, your health situation. Uh, during the natural walking, uh, you can use the counting as well. That is, while you're walking, uh, you can pick up the breath, and in the same way, let's say on the in-breath one, on the out-breath one, on the in-breath uh, two, on the out-breath two, on the in-breath three, on the out-breath three, and so forth. You may feel it in a particular part of the body. For some reason, when I do natural walking, I feel it right here in the heart center a lot. And I can just feel the breath happening there. And so it's uh, one, one, two, two. And again, if your mind wanders and you lose the breath, just start over with one and go from one to ten. And that can help uh, ground you and stay with the breath and strengthen uh, samadhi. Another, now we move into words. Some minds don't want to count. So we give it some simple words like in, out, 
can be remarkably helpful for some people. It says, as the breath goes in, just a bare whisper in the mind, in. As the breath goes out, out. It's kind of a, uh, an, a label that you tack on to the breath, and that can help steady your attention. Uh, there's another one that I personally have found very powerful, and some of you have, but it may be limited uh, unless you have some um, devotional or uh, emotional connection with Buddhism. It may not mean very much to you. And that is what is called in the practice of parikama, or budo is what is used. It's used in Thailand a lot in the forest, forest traditions as an aid to studying the mind. And budo is simply a Pali word which means the one who knows. So finally, in its deepest meaning, it's the name of the Buddha. It's somebody who fully knows, who has seen through everything that's to be seen through, who's wise. And so that knowingness, that quality, is uh, given the name Budo. Now, if you've grown up in a Buddhist culture, just saying Budo, you key it to the breath, on the in-breath, Boo, and on the out-breath, Do, Budo, Budo. You can also use it with walking, Budo. Budo. These are all aids to samadhi. If you've grown up in a Buddhist culture and the term has some uh, devotional significance, then it has another dimension to it in that, to some degree, it opens the heart because it's like a Christian saying Jesus or in Islam saying uh, Allah. In other words, the fr- you've heard the phrase countless times and it has a certain uh, spiritual uh, association for you. But to my surprise, I found that more Westerners than I ever thought are drawn to phrases like Budo, even though they've not been to Asia and uh, relatively new at Buddhism. For whatever reason, if you're drawn to it, it can be very helpful. Again, it's just to help us be mindful. Other um, approaches which I don't think we'll have time for, although some of you intuitively have, have done it, but I think it would be helpful for you to know it, have to do with challenges uh, given to the yogi uh, to discern something about the mind. And this is sort of beginning to train us for insight work, and that's why I'd like to bring it up. In uh, some of the training, uh, the, not only do you follow the breath, but you're asked to, to get to know, is the breath a long breath or is it a short breath? That means, is it shallow or is it full? Do you feel it just at the chest or does it go all the way down to the abdomen and even into the pelvis? You're asked to, uh, to notice whether the breath is coarse or fine or whether the breath is, a, is pleasant as you experience the in-breath and the out-breath. Is it a pleasant feeling, comfortable, or is it unpleasant or uncomfortable or neutral? And so, by looking at the breath now, there's a little bit of extra attention that's needed you, in order to discern whether the breath is fine or coarse or long or short, etc. You've got to look a little harder. Now, that looking has to be balanced. Uh, but that challenge to the mind can make the breath a more interesting object. And I think we'll do one meditation tomorrow uh, using it, maybe more than one. So what that does is sometimes the, the, uh, it's the beginnings of the mind learning how to look more carefully or investigate. These very simple 
qualities, characteristics of the breath, which can be, which are sometimes helpful. Um, some teachers, uh, to enhance the interest of the breath, this is still a samadhi practice, will, uh, will encourage you to uh, Buddha Dasa in Thailand, some of you have read his books, will encourage you to begin to see the, uh, what the impact of different kinds of breath, what their impact is on the body. For example, one that's very clear is that as the breath becomes more full and long, rather than shallow, uh, not only is there a happier feeling in the mind, but the body starts to change very much. As the, as the breath gets longer and deeper, uh, that has a very positive effect on the body. Uh, and when it really starts to happen, you notice that the body is in less pain, that you can sit longer. And so in order to, you're encouraged to, to notice that, to realize, oh, there's a lot of value in the breath. The breath is not simply some kind of a, a concentration exercise, that it uh, has tremendous impact in a very, very subtle way. The more subtle the breath becomes, the more powerful. And so in learning that, there's more motivation to pay attention to the breath. We realize that what we're paying attention to is something quite worthy of our best care and attention. It's not uh, trivial or just incidental. Okay, I think I'll... um, Give me a moment. Okay, I think uh, what I'm going to do is just add one final aspect of samadhi. I mean, samadhi is a vast subject. There's lots more. Um, Having to do with daily life, and I would like to begin our uh, insight work because more and more tomorrow... Uh, the instructions will change a little bit or uh, your orientation really will change a little bit. Uh, Those of you who want to continue with the samadhi practice as we've been doing it, please feel free to do so for the remainder of the retreat. If you have any questions, bring it up in interview. But it's certainly a worthwhile way to spend the retreat. Um, But as preparation for that, and I know that many people have had problems with physical pain, I'd like to begin to talk about physical pain and uh, how wisdom can be of some help. But, but one, uh, one other subject before that, and if we have to go a little longer than the time for the talk, I, I think we will. I think it's necessary tonight. So your walking may be cut short a bit. Um, the other way to help see the value of samadhi so that you're more interested in doing it is first of all to notice it's the spillover into daily life. Let's say as you do the samadhi practice on the cushion and the mind starts becoming more calm and more stable, uh, you can't help but notice that it affects daily life in many, many ways, some subtle and some pretty obvious. Now, when you start this, for example, you may find that you're more calm in situations which used to get you upset, simply because the mind is more stable. It's not necessarily any, un- any increased understanding. It's just the mind is more stable. And so things come and threaten it. But it gets jostled a little, but it doesn't get thrown. It doesn't run after the bone as much. The practice that we're developing 
on staying with something is transferable. It's not meant to just stay with the breathing. It's transferable to any other thing that you would do in life. Okay. Um, in addition to the sitting practice, seeing the uh, calm and steadiness that develops in the sitting have an impact on our daily life, is when we live our daily life in a certain way, you'll see that that affects the samadhi during the sitting practice. Very much so. And the calm. Uh, if you recall this morning, and in this morning's in- instructions, just a very simple thing. It's not easy to do, but the instructions are rather simple. Can we be undivided in whatever we're doing? Can we have such full respect for whatever person we're with, whatever activity we're doing, whatever situation we're doing, uh, that we give, we give ourselves to it wholeheartedly? If you're sweeping the floor, that's not less valuable than sitting in meditation. And that's, of course, a hard one to learn because at a deep level, we think that this is much more valuable. And you must be kidding. It's much more valuable to sit in meditation in the meditation hall than to, let's say, uh, sweep the floor. And in one sense, of course, there's something extraordinary that can go on in the sitting. It's, it's, it's unique. It's a gem. And then from another point of view, it's not at all. It's just one other thing in our life, sitting. And the practice is meant to be a way of living. So that if we're wholehearted, if our mind is undivided, if we just sweep the floor, and as we've pulled away from that time and time again, either because the task doesn't seem worthwhile or very interesting, and we come back, as you can see, it's the same thing you're developing with washing the dishes or making a bed or listening to someone talk or eat your meal. It's all the mind is learning how to be stable. And so, quite naturally, if we start doing that in our ordinary life, all the miscellaneous things that make up our life, including this retreat, then you're going to see that spill over into your sitting practice. And after a while, you realize that they aren't two things. There's just, whether we're awake in the moment or not, whether we're learning from that which we're in contact with or not. And that becomes the practice. Wherever we are is fine. And it's helpful to do as much intensive practice and sitting. It's extremely useful. Okay. So that's... uh, The only other point is that since calm is a very important aspect of what we're learning... Any time you can detect tension in the things that you're doing in daily life, for, and often they're small things, people will hold the telephone uh, in a very tense way like that and hold pencils in a tense way or uh, be listening to somebody and not be really comfortable. There are many ways, in very small ways during the day, that we're tense in addition to more obvious ways when we're uneasy in the presence of other people and so forth as we can learn to be a little bit more calm there, then since we're trying to develop calm, that is one uh, name for, for our practice is calm in English, is calm abiding. A mind that's calm and steady. It's, it comes together. So starting to see ways in which we're a little bit tense and awkward uh, and then releasing ourselves from that, letting go of ourselves, some of that calm, of course, will spill over into the sitting practice.
Okay, uh, what I'd like to move on now is the bone itself. From the point of view of our development of samadhi, if you recall, all along, uh, you've been encouraged to investigate something if it's become a problem. If we're with the breathing and something interrupts us time and time again, we've been encouraged to drop the breathing for a while and to examine that which has become a problem. I hope that's everyone's understanding. And I know some of you have been doing it. Okay, now this is just an extension of that. And in a certain way, what uh, investigation adds to our practice is we begin to see just what is this bone that we've been running after. Now, we talked a bit about that uh, two nights ago and some of Narayan's talk would really be getting at it as well. So many of the things that distract us, just what are they? Take a look at them. Just what is their nature? What is it that's, why is it so compelling? Why are we so driven to, to gather up these things? And so Vipassana is investigating every aspect of our life, really, to begin to see its nature. Now, as you begin to do that, something changes quite dramatically to the bone. The bone becomes less worthy of our attachment. It becomes much easier to let go of. Let's, let's work with physical pain, because I know that all of us have that here. There isn't a person in this hall who doesn't have to deal with physical discomfort. And as the Buddha put it, we're all comrades in pain, in suffering. We're all comrades in, in birth, in aging, in sickness, and finally in dying. All human beings. We're all brothers and sisters in this. It's too bad we can't unite around that and make life a little bit easier. All of us for each other. But we don't seem to do that. At any rate, those of us who are on the path can certainly do that, and we, we all have that in common. And so let's say there's uh, physical pain. Um, actually, I'll use my ankle because it's starting to happen. So I'll make it a little bit more vivid for me. There's some, sa- some sensations in the ankle, and let's say it starts to become, these sensations become very, very strong, strong enough so we can use the term pain. Um, And the instruction is to then aim your attention there. Now, let me add the perspective of inquiry or investigation, which is vipassana, panya, wisdom. Uh, Are there any hints as to how to look at pain? And we went over some of that Sunday nights with some of you in the, in the yoga room, but let me go over it again and perhaps add a bit. Step number one for us is a form of re-education that's not easy and it's not something that any normal person wants to do. And that is to examine discomfort and pain just as a tremendous, again, <laughs> tremendous number of products are designed to be chemical comforters so that we don't have to experience any discomfort or pain. And I don't think you, a doctor ever tells you when you report some pain, well, just watch it. <laughs> they don't say that. There are other things that are said, all of which have either to 
uh, numb it or take our attention off it or something of that, that sort. But that's why the, the way of the yogi is different. What we learn is, you see, the first noble truth of the Buddha is suffering. Unsatisfactoriness. There is a, a lot of suffering in life. It's not an ideology. It's not something you have to believe in. Those of you who are new, it's not, I'm saying, believe this. This is an ideology. Life is suffering. I'm not saying that. Just examine your own mind and body. And if you find it any different, then I'm really happy for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, clearly, one important thing, since it's a called a noble truth, is we've got to get to know it. We have to really, if we're suffering, we have to know that. Now, there's tremendous emotional resistance to getting to know physical or emotional suffering. We just don't want any part of it. We'll do anything. We have elaborate escape hatches to get away from it. Okay, now, so this is going against the grain. This is asking us to do something that really is heroic. It's bold. It takes courage. It's asking us, look, I know it's just easier to just short-circuit this and get away from it in any of the ways in which you know. But see if you can begin to learn the art of turning towards it instead. Turn towards it and fix your attention on the discomfort and the pain itself. So that's step number one. Can we do that? And that isn't necessarily so easy, as you know, although sometimes it's very easy because it's the strongest object in town. I mean, where else are you going to be? It's so painful that it's just natural. And it is what in meditation circles sometimes called a strong object. You don't have to do so much work with this one. You know, the samadhi gets a kind of booster because it's so obvious. It's not subtle like the breath. It's just wham. There's only one, one place. The whole universe is just your ankle. Not yet, but just for purposes of teaching. Okay. So step number one is, let's say we improve our ability to do that. And I hope that all of us use the heroics with discretion. That is, if you're very new to the practice, you might want to ease up on that. You know, for example, begin to learn how to pay attention to certain pains that are not so uh, severe, certain discomfort in the mind or in the body that are not so severe. Like an itch, that's why I've been using that. We know that an itch is not fatal, by and large. <laughs> okay. Okay. Despite that, do you have any idea of how often you scratch? As you know, part of our job is peeking. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, there's a fair amount of scratching going on. Okay. Now, if you could practice on that, because it's not that bad. You know, I, I know the mind will start, and that's, of course, why it's so interesting. If you can learn to fix your attention on the itch, and then in the face of what the mind is going to throw up, and now we're just going to start to move in that direction, it can be quite uh, clarifying, edifying and educational. Okay. Also, uh, a number of you have a need to look at your watch. You know. uh, instead of looking at your watch, uh, I have never understood that one because where are you, who are you going to meet that's so important? <laughs> or where are you going? I mean, it's just as boring out here, there as it is in here. <laughs> so, so instead, uh, look at the the, the suffering, that's, that's some, there's some suffering going on. I, and if I look at the watch and it says 
eight minutes left to go, somehow I can bear it. But if you practice on those small things, because they are smaller than what we're about to get into, which can be, as you know, pain that you can't do anything about sometimes. And again, what we're talking about is not limited to IMS. This isn't the only place that human beings experience pain. You may think so because you've been on retreat, but it goes on when you leave here as well. There's there's illnesses that we all have. And finally, we will all die. And sometimes the process of dying has pain in it. I know it's not such a cheerful night, this talk. <laughs> I was going to talk about death. You got off easy. Yeah. Okay. So let's say we start to improve our ability to then turn towards something which we normally wouldn't want to get to know, which is some discomfort or let's say physical pain. That's, a good, that's an important step. And let's say we, we do it and gradually develop that ability, not uh, overdoing it which will just make the practice too grim for you, especially if you're new at it. Okay, but now we come into what uh, a very important term for all of us to know. It's one of the most important. It's called sati panya. Sati means mindfulness or awareness, and panya is discernment or wisdom. And that's our best friend. The heart, that is, that we're now developing that ability to not only be mindful, that is to aim our attention at whatever we aim our attention at, but also for there to be discernment in that. It accompanies it. And when it's working, you can't really separate them. The mindfulness and the discernment or uh, wisdom at work, they, they go together. So we're not only witnessing something, but we're also examining it and learning about it. And that's what sets us free. The heart of Vipassana, that's what uproots things. The, the samadhi practice can take us away we have a nice home to rest in, to heal, to regather our forces, to develop more energy, to refresh ourselves, to short-circuit, let's say, negative uh, emotions that, are, that we're getting caught in. But it doesn't uproot things. It cuts the grass, but it doesn't dig up, uproot the grass. Vipassana uproots the grass, the grass here being the kalesis. Okay, this is that ability uh, which many people in the West have very strongly. You know, if because of higher education and science and the university, we've been brought up to investigate. The influence of science, even if you're not a science scientist, is quite prevalent it's in all of us. Uh, psychoanalysis and psychotherapies have been very helpful. It is, it's not new to us to investigate, let's say, our emotions or... And now more and more our body. Now the way in which we investigate is is a little bit different, but still the notion of research is not foreign to us, and this is research on ourselves. Okay, so now one way, uh, one translation, which I think is a pretty good one for sati panya, is truth discerning awareness. That is awareness which discerns the truth of a situation, begins to see the character or the nature the characteristics of that which you are aware of. Okay. And some of that comes about through investigation uh, like the following. This is not the only way to investigate, and you'll see some other ways in the next few days, but this is a very, very important and helpful way. So let's say we have pain in the, uh, what did I say? The ankle. Okay, it's gone away. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> it heard the talk. Um, separating. The first step is of discernment is beginning to know what's what. It starts to see that, let's say, first of all, there's, there's the ankle, what we call ankle. Now, at one point, the ankle had no pain in it, what we call pain. And now it has pain. And at another point, it won't have it again. The pain will be gone. Now, the pain is called vedana, or feelings. These are, uh, let's call them painful feelings, unpleasant feelings. So now we start sorting out. We start to see, oh, I see there's a difference. First of all, there's ankle. That's a form. That's the body. The ankle has a shape and a texture to it. That's one thing. And now, let's see, can I separate with, by observation, by discernment? And then uh, now there are these feelings that are mingled with that part of the body, with the ankle. There's these unpleasant or painful feelings that have somehow gotten mixed in with what we call ankle. So that's, that's an interesting distinction. And now the distinctions start becoming even more important. By, let's say, staying with where the pain is at the ankle and you're feeling these sensations there. Staying there and then coming back, we can see that there are also other things. For example, there's something in us that knows that we're in pain. Right? There's something that's the awareness, the sati. It knows, like right now, it can feel those sensations. There's something, wherever you want to locate it, now, is the pain, is that the same as the knowing of it, or are they different? Well, one way to find out is just bring your attention to the ankle, really stay there, and try not to get involved in other things. Really try to be unwavering, and then kind of go back and forth. And you'll start to see, oh yeah, this, here's pain, this knows it. Ah, I see it. They're not the same thing. One thing is happening in the body, and we stay with that, and then we go to the to the mind and we see there's something that knows it, we come back to the body or you can just stay right in the ankle and then feel that there's something else that knows that. And we start to see, we separate them. We start separating it out. Not only that, there are other things going on. Thoughts and images in the mind. Thoughts about what's happening. Not just the pure knowing, the mirror that reflects what's there, but the mind is churning out labels and interpretations about what's happening. This is excruciating. This is, it starts defining what's happening. Gangrene is going to set in. You know, whatever it says, it says. So there, this is. And now, is that the same as the knowing? Is that the same as the feeling or or the ankle? No, that's different too. And again, you can do the same thing. You can start to be with the ankle and then notice that there are thoughts about the ankle, about the pain in the ankle. And are, the, are those thoughts the same thing as the ankle? No. It's something different. And then again, how about the, the knowingness and the thoughts? Well, no, because the knowingness is what knows we're thinking. <laughs> so you see that it, we start seeing, and that's investigation. We're kind of teasing things apart. We're separating out and seeing what's what. Now, the purpose of this investigation is to save us from suffering. Because if we don't see the way things are, then what tends to happen is because of the very powerful kalesha of unawareness or ignorance, what tends to happen is the mind, we don't make that separation. We don't separate. We don't see what's what. And what happens is that these painful sensations flood the mind. And the mind grasps onto them and catches fire. It's like we scorch ourselves. We scorch our own mind, our own heart. 
with our pain. We, it's like we might as well just take it, pick up the pain that's in our ankle, and we just touch it to our heart. And we make the heart go into pain as well. It gets, it's scorched, it's burnt. And of course, we don't know that that's something we did, and then we, we work so hard to get away from my pain, which we in part created, because of unawareness, because of ignorance, because of delusion, because of not seeing things exactly the way they are. Now, uh, the Buddha addressed himself to this and he's, when asked, uh, what's the difference between the way a wise person experiences physical pain and the way an ordinary person like us experiences physical pain? And some of you know, uh, a wise person, when a wise person uh, experiences physical pain, it's like getting hit with one dart, like one dart sticks you and that hurts. But when the rest of us get hit, uh, are in physical pain, it's like getting hit with two darts. One is in the body and then the other is in the mind. And we're doing that all the time. Our house burns down, so our mind burns down. Is, does it follow? Because our house burns down? Now, obviously, there has to be a reaction. But sometimes it goes on for years. There's no separation. Now, we know from the reports, and some of us who've been practicing a while have had a very clear glimpse of this. So uh, it's something that's within the range of us people. We're ordinary people. It's not out of our grasp. But we have reports from countless yogis and meditators for centuries that it is possible. The Buddha maintained it over and over. It is possible for the mind to become totally free of the body so that the, the body can be in tremendous pain and yet we don't take that pain and inflict it on the mind. So that independent of what's happening to us, it's not only in the body, it's period. That's what an arhant is. An arhant is somebody who's, who's beyond this. Now, they've gotten beyond it through wisdom, through discerning the way everything's working, cause and effect. Now, let me give you an analogy from our own time, and then we'll come back to the situation of the pain and see if we can feel it as something very practical, pragmatic, concrete, and within our range of accomplishment. You're watching uh, a basketball game and you know everything there is to know about basketball. You know the teams, the players, everything. And it's a big screen in color. Okay. And so if there were no announcer describing what's happening, you could watch the game and you'd know exactly what was going on. You'd see, you know, you, you understand. Okay. But it turns out there is an announcer who's very highly paid to tell you what's going on. So it's not enough that you can see for yourself what's going on, this announcer is telling you with, and he has a gift, otherwise he wouldn't be the announcer. Okay. And his gift is to color what you're already seeing. And if he's paid by the home team, he's describing it one way. And if he's paid by the visiting team, the description is another way. And what we pick up is that comes together. And because we're not using investigation, the impact on us is the, uh, the coming together of the announcer plus what's happening. It has an effect on us which we take to be the effect. Now, all you have to do is turn the announcer off. Wouldn't it be nice if we could do that with our mind? But we can, you see. Okay, you turn the announcer off and suddenly you just watch pure basketball. Not basketball plus X, Y, or Z, whoever the announcer is. Then turn it on again and see what difference it makes. 
and there they're going crazy. You know, just whatever it is. Okay. 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 You have a different emotional reaction. We can't control ourselves. And just play with that a while and then come back to your, come back to this situation that's being described here. Uh, there's just pure ankle and we can watch it and there's just the sensations. Those sensations, strictly speaking, aren't even pain. As soon as we label it P-A-I-N, it's already downhill because pain has a very bad press, right? No one likes pain. We don't want it. And as soon as we label it pain, it hooks into every other time we've had pain, you know, in childhood and our anticipation of what's going to happen to us. And so uh, we can't tell that we're adding to it, but we are. So now, what if we can sort out and separate, as was suggested, and we begin to see, oh, ankle, and there are these feelings in the ankle, and we can tell the difference, and we can begin to see that there's the knowing of it, just the reflection of it, like a mirror, like a tape recorder, just the knowing of it, like a camera. And then there are all these words about it that go on and on and on. And if we can separate that and understand that the knowing and the words are different, and the words are the announcer, our emotions and our thoughts and all these stories that are made up about what's happening to us. And so investigation is its very challenging. It requires, of course, the clearer your mind, the, the more stable the samadhi. And that's, of course, why we've been doing this for a number of days. Not that we expect you to perfect samadhi, but whatever little calm you've developed will be helpful because then you can bring it to investigate and the mind will be a little bit more able to accomplish what we've set out to accomplish because it isn't going to be pushed around so easily. And it can begin to separate and see, this is ankle, these are feelings, this is the capacity of the mind to know. These, they're different. These are thoughts. They're, they're different things. Each is a, uh, a universe going on. Each is a, a realm or a field that's independent and they're interrelated, of course, going on. They're referred to as khandhas. I haven't gone into all of them in detail, but they're, they're aspects, that, they're the components of a person, the psychophysical components of a human being. Now, as we begin to see that, uh, if you can separate out and sort out, what tends to happen is the tendency of, the, of whatever the degree of pain is, and of course, if it's, I'm not denying the reality of the pain, there is pain in the ankle, that doesn't... Uh, tend to flood the heart and scorch it the way it does when there's ignorance, when we don't understand what's happening. So then we get hit with two darts. One is the pain and the other is what we make out of it. But we don't separate. We don't know that. And we take it to be, this is what's happening to me. And that's normal for a person who has not been initiated into, first of all, the training and then also the the, the wisdom. And so it's satipanya or this uh, truth-discerning wisdom truth discerning awareness that can begin to get to know what's happening. Not only staying with something, but beginning to uh, grasp the significance of it, to see just what it is. Now, obviously, what I'm saying is not limited to physical pain. That's investigation, and that's one way of investigating. That's the heart of vipassana. Now, just to end for tonight, when the mind is calm and steady and happy and these things can come out of a samadhi practice, then it's fit to do the work of vipassana, to do the work of inquiry and investigation. If the mind itself has no concentration, it's, not, it's fanciful to think that it's going to be able to do very much inquiry. It's hard for it. It's going to keep getting lost 
in everything. It can't keep things straight. Okay, so we're deepening that. We're applying it and we're beginning to uh, see how the unexamined mind appropriates pain and makes it I and mine. It's my ankle, I'm in pain, and that's literally uh, fashioned out of what's happening. It's contrived, it's concocted, it's made. And if you make that, then you have that. And so investigation or insight is the beginnings of seeing through the, the ways in which we're suffering, seeing how we put together suffering. And if we see how we put it together, then we weaken its impact on us because understanding is very, very powerful. We become less afraid of pain as we learn how to work with it. We learn that, sure, no one wants pain. We'd all prefer to not have pain. But if it comes, it's workable. It's all right. We don't have to freak. We don't have to get hysterical. But that takes practice. And again, for those of you who are new, please have a very humble attitude towards this. It's something that takes a lifetime. But you can begin to start moving in this direction. And you'll see that it can really help you a lot in whatever is happening to you, just in seeing just what is happening to me now. The question would be, what is this? Just what is this really? What's happening? Okay, let's um, leave it for the, for the evening and do a bit of walking. And then we'll uh, keep up with the schedule. And tomorrow, uh, if you can, come to the sitting right after breakfast because we'll uh, give a slightly different orientation to kind of make it more possible for you to do Vipassana kinds of uh, practice if you would like to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.